Amen. That's good preaching, I thought, right there myself. Amen. It's pretty good. I have never heard a man testify to his own carnality until tonight. It's wonderful, refreshing, really. An honest Christian, finally. Talking about the lottery, I heard about a fellow the other day, an old man, old gentleman, and he won $200 million lottery. And his family was so concerned, they were apprised of the news, but they didn't know how to tell Pop. They was afraid at his age, fragile as he was, it might take his life, might kill him, shock him so much. So they called their pastor up and they said, Preacher, would you come over and talk to Pop and tell him that he has won the $200 million lottery. Just break it to him easy. And so the preacher came over and he sat there and they talked about the weather and they talked about politics a moment. Then the preacher said, you know, Pop, he said, uh, if you won $200 million in the lottery, what would you do with it? He said, Preacher, I'd give you half of it. The preacher dropped dead right there on the spot. <laughs> I don't know if I, I heard that. I don't know if it's true or not. Your preacher and I have been talking about being truthful in the pulpit, so I, I don't know if that's true, but I did hear that story some time ago. It's been a blessing to be here these couple of days, and I pray that the Lord would help us and use us in this meeting. I've been preaching revival meetings since 1976, and I don't know if I do it the right way or the wrong way, but I try the first two or three days to just preach some straight kind of stuff and deal with people about their lives and try to get folks right with God and carnal people get in the altar and get it taken care of. I expect you probably to be here before the sermon is over, frankly. And then I will try to preach some things after tomorrow and through the rest of the week, something that would be help and a blessing and encouragement to God's people. So I want you to look tonight, if you would, in the little book of Jude. The little book of Jude, near the back of the Bible, if you find the book of the Revelation, you can turn left and you'll, you'll find it there. This book, of course, deals with apostasy. We have uh, the book in the Bible called The Acts of the Apostles. I think this little book could be called maybe The Acts of Apostasy. A lot of it going on in this chapter. Now I want to preach to you what I feel like the Lord would have me talk to you about tonight. And just to start, let's look at verse number 5 in Jude, just the one chapter, verse number 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance. I will therefore put you in remembrance. Now I want to talk to you tonight on this topic, just a reminder. Just a reminder. We sing in our country occasionally, America the beautiful, God shed his grace on thee. I think perhaps we might have to say, America the apostate, God has hid his face from thee. If someone apostatizes, they must have been right at one time and slipped away. The sin of America, in my mind, is not the false worship of a false god, but the false worship of the true God. Several years ago, I wrote this book and inserted in its pages something that took place in April of 1984. There was a conference not far from here in Atlanta, Georgia, 
It was a prayer and fasting meeting. I doubt if they had uh, hundreds there. Men came and prayed and fasted. And at the conclusion of the meeting, they made a list. And the list was entitled, The Sins of the Preachers of America. It is quite convicting. Number one, the exalting of the laws of man above the laws of God and Christ's lordship. Number two, we have failed to apply the word of God to all the walks of life. We have preached without making practical application to the home, the church, and society, thus equaling half-truths which equal another gospel. Number three, pride. An unholy emphasis on academic status, ministerial accomplishments, and peer associations. Number four, we have striven in the flesh and failed to appropriate God's power, adopting humanistic, worldly, pragmatic methods. We have grieved the Holy Spirit by an inordinate emphasis on buildings, attendance, seeming success, and using selfish, entertaining, and compromising media. Number six, the frivolous spirit toward worldly entertainment, amusements, and sports in our lives. Number seven, we have violated God's law on personal debt. Number eight, selfishness becoming tunnel vision regarding our own ministries. Number nine, we have sinned by silence, not crying out against the popular sins of the day like your preacher just did. Number 10, we have failed to exercise biblical holiness in every area of our lives and requiring the same of our members. Number 11, silence regarding immorality, abortion, and sodomy that has brought our nation to the brink of God's judgment. This was, this convocation took place 34 years ago. It is almost prophetic when we read these words. Our immorality, abortion, and sodomy that has brought our nation to the brink of God's judgment. Number 12, failed to cry out against socialism and welfare that has produced an overtaxed and lazy nation. Number 13, sin by accepting government subsidies. Number 14, neglected our wives and children in order to build our ministries, thus allowing the influence of worldly satanic Hollywood to capture the minds of our families. And number 15 and last, we have sinned by sowing discord, gossiping, slander, libel, and the poison pen in our periodicals. Our Bible says very plainly in 1 Samuel 15 and 23 that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Our little writer here who pens this brief chapter, Jude, he said, I will therefore put you in remembrance. And he gives us the thing to remember here, the anecdote, the anecdote, the incident to remember the children of Israel, the people in the land of Egypt afterward destroyed them. The Bible says that believe not. Here were people, these children of Israel, 
They were delivered from Pharaoh's hand. They rebelled against the provision of God. There's so many things that God gave his people. One was manna in the wilderness, Numbers chapter 11 and verse number 9. The Bible says that the the dew was provided there. The manna was there on the dew on the ground and God provided sustenance for his people week after week after week. But his people rebelled. Then down in verse number six, the angels, which kept not their first estate, they rebelled against the authority of God. They did that which was contrary to nature. And you can read about that on your own time in Genesis 6 and other places. Down in verse number 7, even Sodom and Gomorrah, and there were other cities involved, Zebulun and Zoar and Aduma, who rebelled against the commandments of God, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. That sick, sensual society that so reflects what's going on in our day, that which is contrary to God's will and plan. You know, today, they call that an alternate lifestyle. God calls that an abomination. Then skip over, if you would, to verse number 11. It says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Cain rebelled, he rebelled against the worship of God. Cain became a murderer. You know the story, I don't have to go into detail tonight about that, but he offered what came uh, from the field and the work of his own hand. He wanted a religion without blood. I say to you tonight, and you know it well, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The blood of Jesus Christ is the only agent that can cleanse a man from his sin. You can turn over all the new leaves you want to. You can attempt to be the greatest do-gooder in your community. But oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Cain rebelled against the true worship of a holy God. And then you read about Balaam there in that same verse. He rebelled against the power of God. Balaam was a false messenger. He wanted a religion without the supernatural. Now I say to you tonight, you take the supernatural out of the work of God and you might as well join a lodge, the bridge club, or the country club. There'll be no difference whatsoever. But without, without the power of a holy God on a man and on a ministry, God help us. Rebel against the power of God. Religion, religion without the supernatural. There's so much. The error of Balaam was human reasoning. 
In 2 Peter 2 and 15, the way of Balaam was materialism. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. Revelation 2 and 14, the doctrine of Balaam was union with the world. The trinkets and titles are no match for the power of God Almighty. I think being right with God is the most important thing that a child of God must incorporate into his or her life. I was preaching. I had an un, uh, This has been an unusual meeting so far. I told a preacher today on the telephone about uh, the wonderful service we had Sunday morning and, and the other services, but it was a singular service Sunday morning. I, great offering, and it's still going on. Some has come in tonight, I guess 600 bucks, the preacher said, and there's probably some people here tonight that probably ought to ante up a little bit yourself. Amen. We talked about it. It was unusual. I had a strange meeting some years ago. pastor called me on the phone. He said, I want you to come and preach at my church Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I said, well, that'd be fine. I, and I, we worked out. A, I, he told me what date it was, and I had it open. And he said, now, Tim, I'm not going to be there. He said, I have a meeting somewhere else and I want you to come in Lord's laid it on my heart to have you come in and preach a revival meeting while I'm not there and so I went I preached Friday night and Saturday night preached Sunday morning Sunday night service started at six o'clock I preached a sermon on I, I try to preach on this topic nearly every single revival meeting really a, a, a separate message on it I'm not going to be able to do that I don't think in this week but I want to touch it a little bit tonight. He said, I preached that night on bitterness. How God's people so often get that root of bitterness down in their heart. It strangles them spiritually. It suffocates them. It takes the very light. It saps their spiritual strength. And I preached on bitterness that night. There were seven or 800 people in this particular church, the building was packed that night. About six or seven hundred, I guess, that night there. And I gave the invitation and the altars flooded with perhaps a hundred people that night dealing with things in their lives. Or I also asked people to come that had been bitter and God had given them victory over it so that, you know, some bitter people who, you know, if there's only three bitter people in the building, everybody's going to want to know what they're bitter about. And then they end up getting more bitter because of the nosy people. You know, there is something in the Bible about being a busybody. You know that, don't you? And the place was filled and a young man, I think maybe, oh, somewhere between 14 and 17 years of age, I believe he's still in high school. He came and stood right here and he asked me, he said, Preacher, would it be okay if I said something, I said, you know, and I, I get a little leery because you don't know what people are going to say. Say some, I've heard some dumb things said. And I said, well, what are you, you going to say, son? He said, I, I, I want to confess how I've been bitter. I said, all right. And there was a microphone set down there. He went to the microphone. And he said, you know, my... Mother and dad separated. 
and they were divorced. And he said, some years later, my mother married another man, good man, Christian man, but I've hated him. I've been bitter towards him. He's been nothing but good to me, but I want to say something tonight. Divorce is a terrible thing to happen to people. It's happened to members of our family. And I, I understand the heartbreak of it. I, I have great sympathy for it. And he said, I've been bitter towards my stepfather. I've never called him dad. I've never called him father. I've called him by his first name, kind of, you know, backhandedly. He said, he's here tonight. And he looked with tears flowing down his cheeks. He said, Dad, I want you to forgive me. That dad come running down the aisle. That boy went running up the aisle. They met there about halfway back in that auditorium. And I mean, it was glory to God and folk getting right. The altars filled up again. And something else, somebody else said something that was wonderful and positive, and the altars filled up again. We did not get out that night until after 10 o'clock. God help us. Bitterness will destroy the joy of the Christian's life. You have unreconciled situations filled with pride and gossip and unforgiving spirits. Amen. Now, I'm a great Oswald Chambers fan. I put your pastor onto him several years ago. I, I bought a big book that's got everything Brother Chambers ever wrote. And now he's gone off one time. I don't He bought a whole library from somebody. had about uh, all of them in individual uh, volumes of everything Chambers wrote about that wide. I know jealousy is a sin, but I've been jealous about that for a long time. <laughs> Oswald Chambers said this, and it's a little out of context for you real serious Bible students, but he said this, you can always tell the mark of the beast in your own life. If the question is asked, was it necessary for Jesus Christ to have lived and died to produce this attitude? In your life? I mean, did Jesus have to die on the cross so we could be critical about everything? So we could be selfish? Did Jesus go to Calvary and shed his blood that we could be proud and gossipy and stubborn? You know, it's something good and God uses us in a wonderful way and we get egotistical. Did Jesus have to die so my ego could mushroom? God help us. God help us. You know what I think happens sometimes in our churches? That somebody wants to get right. Some preacher maybe wants to get right. And we won't allow it. We like to exile people to some pulpit Patmos out there. Just leave them and turn our back on them. Never try to help them. Think 
that they can never get right. I'm going to tell you something. Aren't you glad that down the road of life, when you were wrong and you got right, that God took you back? And he will. He will. Korah in our verse, he rebelled against the man of God, his cousins. Korah and Moses were cousins. He wanted a religion without respect. Verse number 11 says, the gainsaying of Korah. The gainsaying. Now that's not a word we use a lot in our day and age. So I had to look it up in the 1828 dictionary. Gainsaying means to deny, to dispute, to contradict, to oppose, to speak against at every opportunity. Listen, you're going to listen to God's man. This is very crude. You're going to listen to God's man or you will go to hell. Our book says very plainly, faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. And how shall they hear? Without a preacher. Without a preacher. Without someone to tell them the direction they're going leads down to a devil's hell. I think the preacher said it in his opening Salvo, I believe you have to be, before you're converted, I think there has to be Holy Ghost conviction. I believe that with all my heart. I got a preacher friend down in Louisiana. He's got a little statement. If God didn't change you, God didn't save you. I believe that too. There's an old preacher friend of mine. He's in heaven now, Brother John Hall. He was down here in, I think, Marietta, Georgia is where he was from, somewhere down by Atlanta. He said this. He said, if you still love sin, you probably aren't saved. I believe that. I'm not, I didn't say, he didn't say, if you ever sin, you're probably not saved. He said, if you love it. If you're carnal, like our brother over here. And thank God he confessed it. And if he isn't going to confess it, I'm going to confess it for him. I like, this, I like this little statement here in Jude, verse number three. He said, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. I believe this common salvation that Christ affords us will make uncommon saints. We're to contend for the faith. It doesn't say to be contentious. It didn't say to be unkind. You know, I don't know if it's our position doctrinally that offends people, but sometimes it's our disposition. It's how we present it and how we treat people. False teaching arises from corrupt living and vice versa. False teachers are speculators in scriptural truth. To these, the truth becomes of no consequence. It creates, a, it creates corrupt ideas like liberty equals license. This liberty that we have in Christ Jesus does not allow us to live licentious. We're to live a life that recognizes 
that sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There are serious, serious consequences. Brother Randy Pike is a dear friend of mine. He's got a great book. I've got one for the preacher uh, called Selah. It's a synoptic of the four Gospels. And he tells in there, one of those four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he got a little illustration, a story in there he got from Josephus. And he said that in, in the Bible days, in the Jewish families, a young man or a young girl, when they did something wrong, their father would punish them uh, with a, a stick, a piece of wood, like, like the Proverbs talks about. And they would apply that uh, piece of wood to a certain part of a child's anatomy and take care of it. And then that dad would hold that little stick in his hand and he would lean over and whisper in his son's ear one word, Selah, which means loosely interpreted, well, think of that or remember this. Think about this. And then he would take that stick and he would go over to the door and up above the door in their homes, they had two little hooks and he would put that stick up above there and every time that kid walked out that door I mean just like most boys would he'd glance up at that I'm going out to play with my buddies I'm going out to do some things I'm going to think about that stick if I get if I do this if I do that I'm going to face the consequences of dealing with that stick again God help us to think of that to remember can you can you do you ever done something wrong as a child of God, and hear that voice whisper, not into your ears, but down into the depths of your soul. Think about it, boy. Think about it. Think about it. Well, I'm not talking about regimen. I'm talking about righteousness. I'm not talking about rules. I'm talking about a desire down in the depths of a child of God's heart to live clean for God. Revival. We need a revival of righteous and right living. I believe revival comes when Jacobs bury their false gods neath the oaks of Shechem. I believe revival comes when Achans lay their wedges of gold out before the Lord. I believe revival stirs when Davids pray and fast for the lives of their children. Revival fires are fanned when Ananias and Sapphira are convicted and fall at the feet of the apostles. Revival shows like when Samson, with its Samson-like faith, when it grows again and great things are once more attempted for God. Revival sparks glow when Rachel's cry, give me children or else I die. And Elijah, Elijah's God answers by fire. And revival comes, the plow of God's, the plow of God's righteousness must pierce the soil of our souls and the fallow ground must be broken up. We rend our garments and our hearts before a holy God. I was sent a couple of books by an old preacher down in Alabama two or three years ago, a man by the name of Samuel Chadwick. I'd never heard of Chadwick before. He has a great book on prayer and a great book on the Holy Spirit. 
Chadwick got to a place in his ministry. He had preached for seven years, no converts whatsoever. And God began to deal with him. He said, you know, Sam, you are dependent on your outlines. You're dependent on your messages. You're dependent on your ability. And so what a drastic thing he did. He burnt all of his, all of his old sermons, burnt every one of them. He got up in the pulpit the next Sunday and seven people were saved. And revival broke out. And the barrenness, the barrenness that had been in that ministry came to a screeching halt. He said, part of it was my own pride and my reliance on human ability. I think your preacher gave me a book in December when I was here, and I read it and thrilled about revivals that I'd never heard about, and I've been studying revivals for at least 35, 40 years. It was about a preacher, I don't even recall his name, a little town of 900 people. And he came there and began to preach in that small town, and revival broke out. Souls were converted. That revival went on for several years, two to three to four years. Finally, it got so big in that little town of 900 that thousands of people were coming. The very last service that that revival uh, had, that they had to finally break it off, 30,000 people inundated that little town of 900 people. And he called George Whitfield to come and to preach that wonderful service to 30,000. And it said in that book, that thousands were baptized that day. Revival. We need God. We need God to move in our hearts and do great things. I preacher talked to me about my Bible reading schedule today. I'm not going to talk about it. I won't. It becomes a source, it can become a source of pride in my own life, and I don't want that. But I was reading through my little program that I use. You know, just as well as I do, you Bible readers, you read and read and read and read, and then you come across a little something you've read 500 times or 100 times or 50 times, and it just jumps off the page at you. And I read Galatians 4 and 6, and right in the middle of that little verse, it says this, that God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. It thundered into my soul that the same spirit that was in Jesus when I got born again when you got born again when the blood of Jesus Christ cleansed the inner temple of your soul the same spirit that he had now resides in us. That eliminates a lot of foolishness. That eliminates a lot of places. That eliminates a lot of words. That eliminates some thoughts. That incorporates some wonderful things also. I wrote on this piece of paper, 
destitute of the power of God, nothing matters. Possessing the power of God, nothing else matters. You don't have to be handsome. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be in perfect health. We, 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 he read something today about a man we've been reading. I didn't know it. I think when he was 13 or 14 years of age, he had a foot cut off. And over his long life, he broke his leg many times. He broke his hip many times. He suffered physically in the flesh. You know, that, none of that matters. This, this flesh doesn't matter. The elimination of the importance of our flesh doesn't matter. It's the fact that God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. You take the, you take the disciples. One of them denied the Lord. One of them betrayed the Lord. One of them doubted the Lord. Uh, two of them, two of the best, James and John. Jesus just gets done telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me. They're going to bury me. And I'm going to rise again. And the very next verse says, you know, Jesus, uh, when you get to your kingdom, I, uh, I like to be on the right hand, my brother on the left. They had their own agenda. The most important transaction or event in the history of the world had taken place was getting ready to take place, I should say. Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world. And those two guys, well, I want a preeminent spot. I want an important position. My goodness. And in the 20th chapter of the book of John, Jesus breathed on those men and they received the Holy Ghost. And within two months, the biggest denier. Oh, and by the way, they all forsook him and fled. Within two months, that denier is preaching and 3,000 people get saved. God, help us to give up our small ambitions. God, help us to set our affections on things above. God, help us to get more interested in what he is interested in than what the world is interested in. Father in heaven, we thank you for a few minutes tonight. This little book near the back of the Bible, it explodes with tremendous themes that are so appropriate for our day. The apostasy the falling away, the disinterest, the pride, the bitterness. God, I pray you'd help us not to look at other people, but to look inside. Down in the secret chambers of our hearts, down in the private closets of our minds. Those places where we don't even want to go. 
I pray you deal with us and help us and draw us to a better place, a higher plane, a more consistent walk, a more faithful testi- testimony, a life pleasing to Thee. We've got to get beyond, Lord, comparing ourselves with ourselves, for that is not wise. There wouldn't be a Christian in this room that couldn't find a Christian in their mind that is not as good a Christian as they are. We could find fault with others. Help us, oh God, to find fault with ourselves. Some folk have come to the altar for whatever reason. My thoughts on invitations are this. If you need to come, you ought to come. And if you ought to come, then you need to come. You say, well, I don't, I'm I'm perfect, Brother Green. Everything's just all squared away in my life. Fine. Maybe you ought to come and pray for some of us that are not as, as fortunate as you are. We have not arrived at the same level that you're at. We need some help. We need some encouragement. I know I've preached meetings over the years, had pastors come that are pastoring large churches or influential ministries. And I've always been humbled. Sometimes those are the first guys that hit the altar. I don't understand that. But I've sat in meetings and heard young men preach and Holy Ghost said to me, you know, you ought to go forward. Well, really, Lord, he didn't really say that much. Just do what I tell you to do, boy. Just do what I tell you to do, boy. It helps people and encourages people. Let's quietly stand our feet. Our brother's going to sing this wonderful old song. You need to come and do some business with the Lord. Step out right now and get in this altar and talk to God about it. Would you come?